extra crown, extra jewels in your crown, I think, for showing up this morning. Man, what a rugged morning. Goodness, we got some nasty weather in store. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you braved it. Um, I'm joking about the jewels. No promises. Uh, it's probably just going to be a regular crown. Uh, really, you don't get any special recognition for showing up to corporate worship. That's a given. That's a duh. Um, I, uh, if you're visiting with us, we really are glad you're here. I wanted to just invite you to this little table on the way out, if you would, if you haven't done that yet. Um, we're uh, glad that you're with us this morning. I, uh, we start each Sunday morning, or at least the sermon part of each Sunday morning, praying for a local church and another pastor, uh, almost without fail. And this morning, we're going to pray for Kavanaugh Methodist Church and the Pastor John Kay. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together. We are thankful for weather, uh, for rain, for all that you give us and provide for us in these seasons, Lord. We are uh, thankful that um, this morning we are able to get out and enjoy you together corporately, Lord. We pray for those who aren't with us this morning uh, due to weather or uh, sickness or um, age or whatever it might be that uh, folks may be homebound for whatever reason, Lord. We pray that they would be blessed as they join us. Uh, online or later this week. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that our time together would be uh, glorifying to you. I pray that you would bless us, um, equip us, Lord, uh, to walk well uh, between Sundays, equip us to walk salty, bright, and aromatic as the people of God, Lord. We want to pray, too, for another church in our community, Lord, we're praying for Kavanaugh Methodist, for uh, John Kay. Uh, Lord, we want to pray first for John's family. Lord, I pray that you would bless his family, uh, that you would... Um, that the worship uh, that takes place as he's following you, Lord, that it would first show up in the way that he treats his family, treats his wife, Lord. I pray that it would be a, a home base for him uh, in, in a way that he walks out the gospel at home, Lord. I pray that it would be familiar ground for his family and that his family would be in some ways a walking um, testimony of what it looks like to walk with you. And, Lord, I pray that you'd bless him, that his first and best goes home. And uh, Lord, I pray that the, the overflow would go to the people of God at Kavanaugh Methodist, Lord, that you would bless the church there, that you would um, equip the saints there, Lord. I pray that they are, uh, as they're gathering this morning, Lord, that they are gathering to hear uh, a good salty uh, message that will equip them. Lord, we are entrusting them to you. Uh, Lord, too, we have to celebrate what you're doing in little Trevor's uh, body. Lord, we are so thankful and we continue to lift him up and his family. Uh, and just pray that you will continue to heal his body. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I had a smile as we were singing, just as I am this morning. Uh, um, Clint and I spoke earlier this week about some songs that might be a good fit uh, for this Sunday, and I brought that up. Just as I am, I don't know that we've sung it here. Uh, Scott, maybe years ago, may have led us in just as, as I am at some point. Uh, we're not a church that practices altar calls. We did initially. Uh, we were a brand new baby church. Uh, I've actually in, in the past done a little write-up on why we don't practice altar calls. Um, and I may send that out this week just because we're kind of, you know, we're singing some altar call type songs. And that might sort of trigger a, hey, why don't we do that? So I may, if I, if I recall, if I remember to do that, I may do that. Um, for us, you know, growing up, that, that song was, was something our, our church sang pretty much weekly and sang many, many verses weekly. And you knew when somebody was really saved when they went down on the first, um, you know, stanza, on the first line, you know, the first few lines of Just As I Am. If somebody waited till those eighth or ninth round of Just As I Am, uh, kind of unsure whether they're going to stick, you know, whether they're going to go the distance with Jesus or not. 
That's not true. I'm just, just making that up. Um, it's pretty funny, though. Um, but that song has, has a lot of memories for me. I was a little emotional and a little happy at the same time because there are a lot of memories associated with that song. I was six years old when I came to faith in Christ in Pineville, Louisiana. I grew up in Alexandria, but we went to church. We gathered at a, with a church in a neighboring city, a sister city called Pineville. Uh, I remember sitting on a little tiny wooden chair that... Uh, uh, a lot of the old churches, I, I think a lot of the old Baptist churches may still have, we had them then that were like really, really tiny chairs and you went to pick them up and you realize that thing is as heavy as a full-size chair. I don't know why they were made that way, but they're really robust chairs. And this, I remember sitting on this little chair, it was about the right size for me. It was a little small for Mrs. Winters. Um, she sat with me across from me in a little chair, the same size, and she shared with me uh, about my sinful condition. Um, I grew up in church, so it wasn't a new thing for me, but it, that was the Sunday, I recall, where I really heard it, where I, for the first time, I think apprehended that I was crossways with my Creator. Uh, she shared with me my sinful condition. Uh, she shared with me the goodness of a Savior who, connecting to another old, sweet old hymn that's dear to me, who sought me and bought me with His redeeming love. Man, crazy how those little songs, they connect to a a deep, kind of a visceral connection. Uh, she told me, not in these words, but in words that I recall that we sang every week, that he loved me ere I knew him and that all my love was due him. And it was on that Sunday when I was six years old uh, that I became a follower of Christ in union with him by faith. For the previous six years, as I'm singing just as I am, I'm not like a little pagan singing just as I am. I was pre-follower. But it was that day where I officially recognized that Jesus was my Savior, and I trusted him as my Savior and Lord. And that was the day that I trusted him by, in faith and, and was united to him in faith at the age of six. I hope that each of you have a story. It might be a day. It might be a moment. Uh, and it's different for everybody. Uh, Christie's was a season. There's no day and moment and hour where she trusted Christ. It was a season in her life where she began to realize this is true. This person is true, and what he's done is absolutely true. So I hope that you have at least a season or maybe a day and time that you can recall and that you can enjoy and as you recollect on the time that you began to follow him. And if you don't, my hope and prayer that this morning might be that this might be a day that the Lord uses for beginnings for you. That it might be a day where the Lord calls you and you follow him and trust him in faith and are united to Christ in faith. Let's go to our passage in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Something that I do each week as part of my Bible study and preparation for uh, preaching and, and uh, sermons is, is, uh, is a time of observation. And you might not realize it, but we do this almost every Sunday. It might be a little more official where I sort of show you some particular things. But I'd like to take a few minutes just observing this passage and just invite you in to observe this passage 
with me. The setting here is in Galilee. If you were here last week, you know that Galilee is, was considered to be a place of darkness. It was the, the northernmost region, the, the furthest distance from Jerusalem, the flagpole, uh, that place that was uh, populated by half Gentiles, or the Assyrians had repopulated during the Assyrian exile, or the exile of Israel into Assyria. Uh, it was a region that the Jews called Kabul. I learned that this week. Kabul, not as in Kabul, Afghanistan, but Kabul that the Jews called meant worthless and sterile. <laughs> Man, just let that hit you for a moment. Okay, that's where Jesus goes to minister? That's where Jesus goes to initiate his ministry? And to kick off his ministry, you've got to enjoy the irony. It's pretty great that we have a Savior that walks into darkness, walks into a place that they call sterile and worthless, and begins calling people from darkness. Man, we considered last week a 17, in, in verse 17 a nine-word sermon, the first recorded words that we have from Jesus in the book of Matthew. Well, this time we get a ten-word call, and follow me and I will make you fishers of men, in verse 19. That nine-word sermon and this little short call in verse 19 are a summary of Christ's ministry. I like cliff notes. When I was in, in college, man, cliff notes saved me. Some of y'all that know what I'm talking about, you know the little yellow booklets? You know that little rack where you go make a beeline to them and bypass all the other big, heavy, thick books that are hard to read? Yeah, cliff notes. Cliff notes on the book of Matthew are verses 17 and verses 19. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you want to know what Jesus is up to in the rest of this book, it's fleshed out in the remaining chapters. But those are a nice summary of what Jesus is up to. First, he calls Andrew... And Simon. I'd like to read those verses again because we're just going to sort of draw out a few things from those particular verses, sort of immerse ourselves in this passage today. This will be officially the third time that we've read this passage over the course of the morning. I, I enjoy that. I like that. It's a super saturated scripture, super saturated morning. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. I like to follow the verbs when I'm studying a passage. Verbs, they are a nice way of sort of condensing and synthesizing really what's going on in a passage. So let's just consider Christ's verbs, first of all. He saw two brothers. That's the first verb that belongs to Christ. And the second verb here says, he said something to these two brothers. He saw them, and he said something to them. And then their verbs... They left something, and they followed him. Man, it's nice and clean. Just pay attention to those four verbs because they're going to become familiar over the course of the morning. He saw two brothers. He said something to them. He called them as synonymous, and then they left, and they followed. Andrew and Simon followed Jesus. Pay attention to the verbs. Now, in this case, it's a nice little picture of Galilee, this place with half and half uh, Gentile and Jew, because just in the names, Andrew and Simon, you've got one guy, one son with a Jewish name and one son with a Greek name. And ironically, it's no surprise that, this is, that their names split up that way if they're living in this half and half region. But it's also ironic that it's Simon who gets the rename. The one with the Jewish name is the guy that gets renamed with a Latin name, Cephas, or a Greek name, Peter. Man, 
Jesus shows up. He sees these guys. He speaks to these guys. They leave their stuff, and they follow him. It seems super abrupt, doesn't it? I mean, just imagine being these two guys, and imagine being in that context as you watch that thing go down. It looked pretty abrupt. It looked like, man, it almost looked like robots, like these guys, they're just called away. I mean, do they even know who this guy is? Actually, I want to add some context, some micro context for you this morning. You can turn if you'd like, or you can just listen to the book of John, John chapter 1. I have a few places for you to turn this morning. This is not one of them unless you just really want to. This is a passage I'm sharing just for the sake of context as we consider these two guys in particular, Andrew and Simon. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, listen to this. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples. And John the Baptist, you know, is probably down closer to Jerusalem. Okay, he's down where Jesus was baptized in the, in the Jordan, just, just there nearest uh, Judea and Jerusalem. John is standing with two of his disciples, and we're going to find out who those two people are in a moment. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him and say this, and they heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. We hadn't figured out who they are yet, but let's keep reading. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, you may not realize this, but this happened actually before the account that we're reading in Matthew chapter 4. Okay, because at that point in Matthew chapter 4, John the Baptist has been arrested. Because this happened before the call of Simon. And Andrew, look, the next verse, it says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So this happened likely down near where Jesus was baptized before he headed back to Galilee. And that's where he called, where we are in Matthew chapter 4, Andrew and Simon. So a little context is important, but I have to throw out this question that I hope you might be wondering is why wouldn't Matthew mention that? I mean, it's just kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, we have the Gospels. We have these different vantage points on the life and ministry of Christ. I've always considered the Gospels as sort of like four witnesses on four corners of an intersection that watch a car wreck. Okay, four different vantage points, four different descriptions that all synthesize into one reality. Okay, why wouldn't Matthew incorporate the reality? Even seen as baptism. They were disciples of John the Baptist, but he presents it as like a cold call. Like he's just walking down the shore in the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and he sees Andrew and says, come here, follow me. And they just get up like robots and follow him. So Matthew, what are you doing? Okay, Matthew, are you up to something here leaving that out? Okay, I'm throwing that out there because I think we're going to find out that he actually is. Okay, let's go to the second call. If you turned over to John, turn all the way back to Matthew and let's look at the second call of the second set of brothers. Verses 21 and 22. 
I'll give you a second. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They're both sons of Zebedee. Okay, don't, don't get twisted around a weird wording there. They're both the sons of Zebedee. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, let's follow the verbs. This we, we did on this last call. Let's see if we can follow the verbs. Jesus saw these two other brothers, is what the passage says, and he called them. Okay, just like he spoke to Andrew and Simon, he called James and John. And then their verbs, resultant verbs, are they left their boat and their father in this case, and they followed Jesus. He saw, he called, they left, and they followed. Follow the verbs, it's important, and it'll play out over the rest of the morning. Just make a little note of that. Now, in Andrew and Simon's case, there is this other information, this micro-context that Matthew didn't provide. There's actually likely some micro-context to these guys as well. There appears to be a relationship between Jesus and his family and Zebedee's family in other passages. Later on in the book of Matthew, in in, uh, Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, comes to Jesus and asks for some special seating for James and John in Christ's kingdom. You may remember that conversation. Then later at the end of the story, or close to the end of the story, at the cross, as there's a group of ladies that are witnessing the cross, Mary is standing there with the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. It looks like there was some micro-context for these guys as well that they may have already known this person that called them that day on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So again, we have to ask the question, why in the world of sports, Matthew, would you leave that out of the story? What in the world are you up to? You made it really look really abrupt and really sudden. We'll come back to that later. But let's consider a few more things that come out of this passage. All four of these guys, we got two sets of brothers. All four of them have something in common. They have a trade in common, and they also have in common a family business. In Andrew and Simon's case, it's at least a family business in regards to two brothers who are in business together. We don't know if there were any other family members involved, but we know for sure we're talking about Andrew and Peter work together. And in James and John's case, they're also part of a family business because dad is in the boat mending the nets with them. This is a family business with pops involved. Just think about family businesses. I've tried to been thinking about, uh, I've tried to think about family businesses in our church. And I'll mention a family uh, here in a moment that I know has worked together at different points, but I, I want to bring this, this thought out first. I can't imagine there weren't significant responsibilities connected for both sets of brothers. In two family businesses. Okay, they're not working for big corporations where if they leave, it's like, ah, HR just reaches out to somebody else that's in a pool and plugs them right in. They're involved in family businesses, so they're going to they're have significant responsibilities. There's lots of reasons for them to say, hey, wait a minute here, Jesus. You don't realize what you're doing, what you're asking us to leave. What about these nets? That we have. Those nets were really expensive. I saved up for these nets for a long time. And we care for these nets. We mend these nets and we tend to them. What about our boat? You realize how much this boat cost? You're asking me to leave this net and leave this boat. And even more than that, you're asking me to leave my dad? Do you have any idea, Jesus, how much this will impact them and then this family business if I just pick up and leave? Man, lots of reasons 
for them to respond with, who do you think you are? We are his means, after all, Zebedee's means for providing for he and my mom. I thought in some ways this might be like Braden and Bryce and Bud. <laughs> Braden and Bryce, I know, have worked for Bud at times over their, their uh, young adulthood, over their teenage years, because I've seen them around at job sites. And I'm imagining just for a moment, just imagine for a moment, if you're still in the family business, and someone from Hawk Cove calls you away from the family business to go follow them. It doesn't even look like it's a real job, what Bud might have to say. <laughs> I could just imagine what Bud might think. Well, he'd be scratching his head. These guys were called away from two family businesses. And they were called away from good jobs, too. I did a little research on what it meant to be a fisherman in ancient uh, Israel. Fishermen worked hard. It was a good profession. Uh, it was a, um, uh, they weren't peasants. They made good money. I mean, if we weren't catching anything, it, it, was, it wasn't so good. It was sort of a straight commission type of job. But they, these guys realized they were called from lucrative jobs with big responsibilities to being called to fish for men. Okay. I'm going to give you a moment to turn to the book of Jeremiah because I'm going to explain this fishing for men image. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 16. And I'm going to just share a little uh, side thought as you're turning there. I hope over the course of our time together uh, as a church that there are times where, I know this happens from time to time, someone that feels like they're being called to vocational ministry. Let me take a uh, a two-minute uh, window to respond to you or give you a thought for someone who might be considering vocational ministry. In many ways, this call of these four guys is not only a call to follow Christ, but it's also a great picture of what it looks like to be called to vocational ministry. So here's a little side note for those who might be considering this. Notice they were called to vocational ministry while gainfully employed. Let me see if I can develop that for a minute. <laughs> when I went to seminary in Fort Worth years ago, a lot of guys that I went to seminary with that were at seminary just because they were bored. They were bored and they were lazy and they thought it might be fun to go get a degree in some sort of ministry position and then go work at a church somewhere and maybe be a youth minister or a minister of music. Man, let me encourage you, please, please don't follow that line of reasoning. I would argue that the most effective ministers are ones who know what it's like to mend nets, are ones who've held down a real job for a period of time before they go into a ministry position because then they understand the rigors of those that they serve. Doing some hard stuff before you're called to vocational ministry ought to almost be a requirement. <laughs> it ought to almost be a requirement. Okay, let's come back to this fishers of men thing. That's just a little, little soapbox there for the... Um, the folks that, that want to be idle and being called into ministry, don't do it. Don't do it. This fishers of men thing seems like it's just sort of a new idea. We don't really see any other references that help us de develop it in the New Testament. It's hard to make sense of. In fact, one commentator believes it's just a parable. It's a one-sentence parable. There actually is a reference for where this comes from a couple of different places in our Old Testament. Jeremiah, Amos, and Hezekiah, or excuse me, Habakkuk, all three use this imagery to refer to something in the life of the story of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16 says this, listen. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them. 
from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations." In the Old Testament, this is a concept, this idea of being fishers of men, and you could add in hunters of men in this case, according to this passage in Jeremiah, is the imagery to describe foreign armies raiding the land of Israel, carrying off Israelites into exile. It's a very negative connotation in the Old Testament. It's a very negative picture, as negative as it might be for you to be a fish and actually get caught. Hey, right? Can you imagine you're swimming around, you're catching worms and bugs and everything, living the life of Riley as a fish, and then all of a sudden you get caught? That's not a good thing. In the Old Testament, that was the imagery where you are actually being drawn off into exile from an invasion from Gentile armies with Gentiles doing the fishing. Here, though, Jesus has totally flipped, totally flipped it around. He's totally turned it upside down. Here he's calling Jews as his disciples to fish for Gentiles and Jews from the seas of the nation. To bring in the exiles from the far corners into the good land of God's kingdom. They're not being gathered in this case to be taken into exile, but rather gathered up from exile and brought into a good kingdom, God's kingdom. It's like he's gathering up the lost sheep of Israel He's catching the lost fish of exile. So Andrew, Simon, James, and John leave all that they know, and they follow Christ. He says, I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets. They left their boat. They left their dad. And they followed him immediately. All right. So what do we do with this? I have three thoughts for you this morning, three things that I'd like to develop in these next few minutes. I um, have, have really considered what, what we needed to do here. I think Matthew left some things out of this story. I think Matthew gave an impression. He gave certain details to give an impression of an abrupt call, a responsive movement that's not a dishonest impression. Matthew is making a point throughout his book so far. You know as well as I do if you've been paying attention to Matthew is always up to something. And every detail is important. So I want to figure out in these next few minutes if we can glean some things that Matthew is saying here. We're not going to synthesize all the Gospels and try and figure out some sort of anatomy of a call. We're going to try and figure out what Matthew's point is. So there's three things we're going to draw out in these next few minutes. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to spend the rest of our morning in Matthew. We're going to flip around a few different places in the book of Matthew, first of all, I want to point out this first of three things that I believe that Matthew is developing is that the call of Christ is ironic. The call of Christ is ironic. We just read the account of the call of Andrew and Simon. We've considered the call of James and John. You remember the verbs? Jesus sees he calls, they, they leave, and they follow. Okay, really nice, tidy verbs. Let's consider the call of someone else in this storyline. Actually, the author of this gospel, 
a man named Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Hmm. Getting kind of familiar already. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's almost identical. If you think the verbs that are involved, just notice. He sees him. He speaks to him. He calls him, synonymous with a call. He says, follow me. Matthew rises and he follows him. The boats and the nets, in this case, are replaced with a tax-collecting booth. I want you for a moment to consider what happened a few weeks ago as we considered the baptism and then what happened since the baptism in Matthew. A lot happened down there near the flagpole. A lot happened near Jerusalem. And this statement, too, in Christ's nine-word sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's some, some significant statements that have been made about a new kingdom that has come that should lead everyone, as we're reading this gospel, if we didn't know how the rest of it would go, to look for some pretty sensational stuff. A kingdom has come. <laughs> to look for some pretty dramatic stuff. But Jesus, though, begins his ministry in dark Galilee, Kabul, Least likely place. He begins his ministry in dark Galilee and he calls four local fishermen as his first recruits to change the world. And he adds to those four local fishermen a despised tax collector. Matthew chapter 13 is just a couple of pages over, so there's no reason to not turn there. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, I think has a beautiful picture of what's going on here. The nature of the kingdom that he is announcing. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Man, we should enjoy together. This beautiful picture of this parable being played out in real life with real names, Andrew and Simon, James and John, and a guy named Matthew, a tax collector and some fishermen are going to change the world. It sounds like a wee seed, and it sounds like the picture of the kingdom. And we should enjoy the irony of he who calls us, or the irony of who he calls, so maybe we can not be prone to think so highly of ourselves. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. You were fishermen, you were tax collectors, you were everything else. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that he did it for a purpose, in order that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I, it seems a recurring theme in Matthew that we should consider the irony of who he calls. As I look around this room, I know y'all and I know me, and the irony's still here, people. 
If anybody thinks a lot of themselves, man, please consider this story. Please climb into this story and notice who he calls. The second thing that comes out of this story here that I think Matthew is getting at is that Christ's call rates an immediate response. Remember the verbs. Jesus sees, Jesus calls, they leave or they rise in Matthew's case, and they follow. There aren't a lot of other verbs in there. Really, there's just one big fat adverb, the word immediately. That's the only thing else that's standing out there, that word immediately. They didn't hem and haw. They didn't come up with excuses. They didn't dilly-dally. I admit I went to a thesaurus. I could think of all the little synonyms that I could think of, but I went to a thesaurus. They didn't mosey. They didn't ramble. They didn't linger. They didn't loiter. They didn't have to be begged. They didn't have to be coaxed. They actually came on the first verse of just a single verse. You come now or you miss him. Man, it seems that Matthew is making the point about an immediate response to the call of Christ. Why no micro context, Matthew? Why didn't you include all those other details about Andrew and Simon speaking with Jesus down near Jerusalem or down at least near the Jordan before he called them on that sea in Galilee? Why no micro context? I think in Matthew's case, what he's saying here is that considering the authority of Christ in his teaching and his actions, which we're going to see in these next few chapters. How could they not respond immediately? That seems to be Matthew's point. How could they not respond immediately? He didn't add any specific details that were untrue. He added specific details to point out an immediate response because in Matthew's eyes, how could they not respond immediately? From our perspective, man, let me just ask you this for a moment. If you've been with us in this journey in Matthew, let me just ask you a few things. Have you, were you paying attention with his genealogy? Were you paying attention when we started this book in Matthew chapter 1? Were you noticing who he's related to? Did you notice that he's related to Abraham? Did you know that he's part of that promised seed to populate the earth, a new earth, to save the world? Did you notice that he's related to David? Did you notice that he's actually part of the lineage of a king? Man, did you see his birth announcement? <laughs> when our kids were born, we got these little Hershey bars, and we ordered these little wrappers that had a wrapper that looked just like the Hershey's wrapper that said, here he is, or here she is. It was so cute. I thought it was awesome, but it's not as awesome as an angel showing up and giving a birth announcement. Did you notice that his birth announcement was an angel of the Lord showed up to announce it? Man, did you notice that? <laughs> Did you notice that Magi traveled thousands of miles from foreign lands, not just to visit him, but to actually worship him? Did you, did you catch that? Rich, wise men leave everything to come kneel for a few minutes at his manger. Man, did you see King Herod try and kill him? You think he doesn't have any authority? Did you see the king? The local king of the land trying to actually have him killed? Man, I'm just going to say that's tremendous authority. Did you see the last of the Old Testament prophets wearing camel's hair and eating locusts, preaching about him and say, look, there he is? 
Did you see him baptize him? Did you hear the sky open up where God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and remains on him? Did you see that? Are you wondering about his authority? Did you see him resist temptation with bread on the pinnacle, on the mountaintop, where all else have failed? Did you see that? You're wondering about his authority? Did you see him march away from Jerusalem into dark, unlikely Galilee? Man, I'm glad Matthew's making that point. It's a great point. How could you not respond to his call? He's compelling. Man, if we're paying attention, he is compelling. My encouragement to you this day, if anybody in here is wondering, said, I follow Christ or not, pay attention. Follow Andrew, Simon, James, and John, and Matthew and respond immediately. How could you not? The third thing, the first is that Christ's call is ironic. It just is. It should give us all a great sense of humor about this journey that we're on. Wow. Secondly, the Christ's call rates an immediate response. That's Matthew's point. And third... The call of Christ is radical and expensive. It's radical and it's expensive. Let me just break a little sentence down for you. They left their father's business. Can we just think about this for a minute? Let's just break that down for a minute. They left their business. Some of y'all may have started a business. You know what's involved with that. You know that blood, sweat, and tears, DNA, gray hair, everything, effort, everything you've got has got to be poured into starting a business. And they left all of it. They walked away from it. They vacated that. Just consider that for a moment. A good job, a healthy and hungry clientele. Man, catch those fish. The businesses that they built, they walked away from their business. Secondly, they walked away from the family business. Bud, we're gone. We're going to follow this guy from Hawk Cove. Man, let that hit you. And they left their father. When you break that sentence down, they left their father's business, they left their business, they left their family business, and they left their father and implied their mother Man, let that hit you for a moment. They left their father and their mother. They were called to a lifetime vocation, abandoning this way of life for this way of life. They left and they followed. That's their only two verbs. (laughs) And they were expensive verbs. Man, make no mistake. They were expensive verbs. I thought I would take just a moment and just show you a little bit more about the expense. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do one thing to soften it. In Matthew, the call of Christ is demanding. People are called from stable, established lives with real responsibilities to pick up and follow him. They have to be willing 
to forsake it all. Listen to this passage in Matthew 19. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one good, one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall leave, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. Right. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This dude loved his stuff more than he loved and wanted to follow Jesus. Period. He loved his riches and his stuff that he had massed or he had been given or inherited more than he loved Jesus. Following Jesus should mean your stuff is up for grabs, people. I don't mean some of it. I mean all of it. Following Jesus should mean your stuff is up for grabs. A scribe came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. He said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. <laughs> Man, are you serious? I mean, really, are we going to, are you seeing this? I mean, this is right here in Matthew, right? I mean, is, is everybody else hearing this and seeing this with me? Like, I can't even believe he just said that. There's so much going on here. I mean, obviously, his dad is dead. His dad, like maybe his only dad. I mean, anybody got more one dad? He's dead. Hey, can I go bury my dad first and then come follow you? No. Let the dead bury the dead. Those who are not following me, he's saying, are dead. Man, that's what Paul said. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, walking according to this world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. They are by nature children of wrath. I'm not going to soften that. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Following Christ means that one death of that one father and that one burial and that one paying respects has to be up for grabs. All your stuff, and yes, even that one burial of that one father has to be up for grabs. Matthew chapter 10. Now it's about to get crazy. If it hadn't gotten crazy yet, it's about to get really crazy. And I'm not going to soften it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. What? 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 Yeah. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I, yeah, it really says that. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, is not a follower of me, is not my disciple. 
I'm not going to soften it. Whoever loves their son or daughter more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. Man. The way Luke said it, it's not just specific to Matthew. It's not just Matthew that's laying down this hard line. Luke, who's just a physician, he's just laying it out there. Luke says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. I'm not going to soften this. That is a seriously radical love of what it means, a radical picture of what it means, the kind of love that we should have for our, for our Savior in following him. We love him more than we love our wife, our husband, our children. Our parents, it's all up for grabs. There's nothing off limits. Now, here's a passage I do want you to see. Matthew chapter 8. Man, it's crazy when something new just shows up. You think, man, I've been studying Bible my whole life. It's, it's not really anything new we bump into. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Just to, You'd almost miss it if you weren't paying attention. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. That Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's cleansed the leper. He's healed the servant of a centurion. And here he enters Peter's house. The same Peter that he called. The same Peter of the passage we're looking at today. The same one, Simon. He enters his house. Okay, and look what he does. He enters his house. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Whose mother-in-law are we talking about? We talking about Jesus' mother-in-law. He wasn't married. We talking about Peter's mother-in-law. What? Not doesn't say stepmom. It, it says mother-in-law. Peter was married. What? Peter's married. When Peter's called on that seashore, when Peter was a follower of John the Baptist down south near Jerusalem, he's married? You mean he turned to a wife and said, hey, wife, I need to go figure out the truth. I'm going to follow John the Baptist. He says the Messiah's here. What? Yeah, I'll see you in a few weeks. And then he comes back and he's like, ah, oh, he's home. <laughs> awesome. I knew he'd come back. And then he goes fishing. With Andrew, and then he comes back and says, Ah, Jesus called me. I'm off. I'm out of here. I love you, honey, but you're up for grabs. When it means following Christ, in my case, I, I can't stay. I'm gone. First Corinthians chapter 9 confirms it. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 9, says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Peter, you dog, you married. I didn't even know that. I thought you were a single man. Living the life of Riley, this simple life, just following Jesus, eating fish and loaves, seeing miracles. You had a wife at home? What? Wow, that, that changes some stuff. And that too, I think, whenever, whenever Peter said in Matthew chapter 19, 
This is right after the account with the rich young ruler where he left sad because he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. Peter said, see, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. When he said we've left everything, he wasn't lying. It was all up for grabs. (laughs) Man, I'm just going to tell you right now, this just blows my mind. Following Christ in Matthew is expensive. It's all up for grabs. So, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I, I want so badly to soften it. Everything in me wants to soften it. I want to say, oh, it's okay. You know, but y'all don't, I don't want you guys to overdo it or anything. <laughs> in 15 years of this, I've never had to reel anybody in for following Jesus too much. I've never had to say, wait a minute. <laughs> You've gone too far. <laughs> never. So I'm not going to soften this. Is Jesus calling you to leave L3? Is a calling for you and following Christ mean leaving L3 and going to the far corners of being a missionary? Maybe. Maybe. Could it mean selling everything you own and giving to those that have need? Maybe. It's got to all be up for grabs. Man, I hope you don't have to leave your wife. Or your husband, if you have that idea here in the moment, let's talk afterward and see if we can talk you down maybe on that one point. <laughs> but man, let's take what Matthew's saying, the power and the potency and the oomph of this, the punch of this. All of it's got to be up for grabs. Man, let me just help you kind of maybe just digest this just a wee bit with just one thought. This radical call to follow Christ isn't a call to break every earthly tie. I love seeing that after Peter was called, that Jesus and Peter and James and John and Simon, were likely all of them at this point, went to Peter's home. And his mother-in-law sick there. And a healer. It's like this, still this home connection. I love seeing that. That ministered to me. Yeah, I don't think this is a call this morning to break every earthly tie. But I'm going to tell you what it is a call to do. It's a call to place every earthly relationship as subordinate to your relationship with this Lord that's worth following wholeheartedly. Every earthly value, every earthly treasure, every earthly relationship should be placed secondary to this wonderful Jesus. I'll offer this too. The best thing that could ever happen to your marriage, for those of you like wondering, oh, how does this work with marriage? You leave my wife or leave my job? Best thing that happened to your marriage is that you love Jesus more than you love your wife. Little tip there. Something crazy is going to happen in your marriage if that happens. Wives, the best thing that happened to your marriage is that you love Jesus more than you love your husband. Because guess what? That guy makes a terrible savior. <laughs> she makes a terrible savior. The best thing that happened to your parenting is that you love Jesus more than you love your children. Kids, the best thing that happened to your relationship with your parents is that you love Jesus more than you love your parents. Now, you know what that will do? It will steady you through all the craziness that happens with one another. Because he won't let you down. (laughs) He won't fail you. Man, I'm thankful for this perspective. Thank you, Matthew, for not softening it. 
Thank you for showing this. It's everything. It's all got to be up for grabs and that Jesus is that valuable. The call of Christ is radical, man. And it's expensive, sort of. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for this window into the story of Christ via Matthew. Lord, I'm thankful that Matthew has shown us an immediacy, a responsiveness, an eminence, a priority of Christ overall. Lord, I ask you as we've considered this amazingly potent picture of what it means to follow Christ, I ask for the Holy Spirit to work this in us, Lord. Grow us in the direction, please, of loving Christ more than we love our our wives, our husbands, our children, our stuff, our place in the world, even ourselves. Lord, teach us to love Christ more. Lord, refine us. All these things that we place value on, Lord, please show us the ultimate value in Christ. We beg you, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sticking with Matthew, I thought I would just consider for our supper um, this this value that Matthew has placed on on this walk with Christ. In Matthew chapter 13, it's a it's a, a chapter full of parables. Matthew chapter 13, the same place where we just read about the mustard seed, a few verses down, says in verse 34, actually in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's all got to be up for grabs, people. It's all got to be up for grabs because it's that valuable. This treasure is that great. I'll share one more passage and we'll distribute our elements. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all my stuff and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's distribute our elements.